Well, we're in 1 Corinthians, and uh, we are, I hope you're excited as I am to start this book. It's uh, interesting when you start a new uh, study, and you have to lay down a foundation, and that's what we attempted to do uh, last week a little bit. We tried to lay down uh, some foundational material. Uh, Today's message is entitled, Paul's Greeting and His Assertion of authority. And we're just going to be looking at the first couple of verses here in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1. But we'll be looking into the background and the life a little bit of the author of this letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians. And we'll be in this study in 1 Corinthians, if you're wondering, probably for several months, if not years. Uh, So just relax. I know there's some exciting stuff in the book, and we will get to it, but it's going to take a little time. So I pray for your patience as we um, embrace this task before us. Last week, we set up our study with some background information on the letter itself. We noted the, the author of this letter was the Apostle Paul. It's clearly stated there, right, in the letter itself. It's amazing when you read different commentaries. Some people even, well, we don't know if Paul wrote this. It's like, really? I mean, come on. Uh, You really got to stretch your imagination to think anything other than that. And it was probably written on his third missionary journey around 50 A.D. And he had written it to the Christians of the church that he founded. And uh, so he, he was one of the ones who founded this church, and he was in Ephesus at the time of the writing. And we noted some details about the city of Corinth in which Paul founded this church. It was, uh, you can see there on the map where it was located, it was located on this isthmus, um, and it was a Roman colony in uh, Greece. And so it kind of was different in that respect. But we also covered some pressing issues about the place itself. We asked the question, why did Paul write this letter? It was a pressing letter. Why did he write it? And we we looked at three things about Corinth, the city in which the church was located. First of all, we talked a little bit about that it was a city of of degradation. degradation. And it was just a uh, spiritually a dark place. It was at the crossroads culturally it was a, it was a uh, place where people passed through, whether you were going east, west, north, south. And with that came all the pagans' influence. And it was really a, uh, not a very nice place to live. However, it was very affluent because there was a lot of money there because of the trade industry and everything. But with that, just like any affluent society, it seems that Satan somehow brings in the sin as well. And that's what happened to the church at Corinth, or the city of Corinth. It, it became so bad that if you were to describe someone who was um, promiscuous in their living, you would call them a Corinthian. Fornication was replaced with the word Corinthianize. So that's how prevalent it was. They had thousands of prostitutes that would come down to the temples, from the temples into the streets. And unfortunately some of this influence began to work its way into this newly founded church. Uh, One thing about the church, the church is called to be pure. The church is called to be holy. If you doubt that, that's what the word church (laughs) means. 
It means called out ones. Okay? Set apart. Throughout the scriptures, we see constantly believers referred to as a peculiar people. People who don't fit in this world. People who are different. And that doesn't mean we're to be weird. That's not what we're called to be. But we're called to be spiritually set apart. This world is not our home. Amen? We're just passing through. And we have to keep that in the foremost recesses of our mind. Because if we don't, the world has a way of just sucking us in. And pretty soon we are conforming to the world itself, which... Paul and other writers say that's not what we are to do. And so it was, the city itself had a lot of issues. And you can listen to the message from last week if you weren't here to go over the details. But secondly, it was also a church in division. We see early on in Corinthians, he addresses this. And so really, Paul was writing this letter as a way of unifying the church there. Because they were split. They had many divisions. Some people say, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow this guy, I follow that guy. They had all these factions within the church. And if it's one thing that the church is not supposed to be, it's not supposed to be factious. It's not supposed to be divided. And you might say, well, why is that? It's simply because spiritually we are not divided. It doesn't matter what kind of background you come from. It doesn't matter what kind of uh, place you live in or, or where you live in the world. If you are part of the body of Christ... We are one body. It doesn't matter what label. You can call yourself a Methodist, a Baptist, whatever. If you're truly born again, if you've been saved by the grace of God, you are part of his body. You are part of his church. And as part of his church, he says, I don't want divisions. And you say, well, why do we have all the denominations? Well, that's our doing, unfortunately. You know? Now, I am not saying by any means that we forsake all doctrine and just kind of hold hands and sing kumbaya together and and say, hey, we're all one. No, we can't compromise the truth. And see, that's unfortunately what a lot of modern-day churches have taken the unity of the church to mean. Well, we just have to drop all the, the doctrinal issues and just come together, and we just want to love. And you see signs on churches all around the Bay Area especially, all are welcome, all are affirmed. And it's like, that is such a wrong message to send to a lost and dying world what the church is, because the church is not that. And unfortunately, a lot of churches have become, on Sunday mornings, so interested in evangelizing the lost that they forgot about the saved. And I've even talked to pastors who, well, we don't really feed our people on Sunday mornings. That's not the purpose. We, we want to evangelize on Sunday mornings. And then, you know, if they want to go to a home group or something, that's where they get fed. That's not how the New Testament church operated, beloved. The New Testament church gathered the first day of the week. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That's why we're here. Now, we don't ever want to set aside evangelism. We believe that we're also called to evangelize a lost and dying world. But we're not going to compromise our truth on Sunday morning so that if unbelievers happen to be here on Sunday morning, they can just relax and say, hey, this is pretty cool. This is like going to a concert. This is pretty nice. I feel comfortable here. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a believer in Christ, spiritually you should not be comfortable here. Because the message of salvation until you embrace it, is not a comforting message. 
It's one of confrontation. It's one of revealing your true position before God as a lost sinner. I don't know if you've tried this, but you go around calling people sinners. That's not going to win you a lot of friends and influence a lot of people. That's not a message that the world goes, oh, yes, tell me more how much I am a sinner. I want to hear more about this. No, that's an offensive message. And before we came to Christ, each one of us, probably the first time we heard the gospel, the first time someone called us a sinner, the first time they pointed to a verse in the Bible that said, you know what, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we stepped back and said, well, wait a minute, I'm a good person. No, you're not. Sorry. The Bible doesn't tell you that. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what has happened to this church in Corinth, it became divided. The world's influence crept into the church. And so we have to be on guard about that. And then thirdly, we, we looked at how they had a crisis of doctrine. They had people who were denying the resurrection. They had people who were misusing gifts constantly. They had people who were, were disrupting the service as it was going on. See, those things have no place in the body of Christ. Because that doesn't bring unity. What does that bring? Just read through the book of Corinthians. You'll see. It brings confusion. It brings factions. Well, today, as we introduce a little background on Paul, I want to read a portion of a commentary I read uh, this past week, and it was about John Newton. When John Newton went to sea, like most sailors, they were not living the most moral life. They live a very rebellious life. They were a very, uh, lived a very debauched life, a very sinful life. And for several years, John Newton worked on slave ships. He captured slaves, and he would sell them to plantations in the New World. That's what his job was. And the story goes that so low did he sink that at one point he himself became a slave. The one who was selling slaves, he got so bad off that he became a slave. He was a captive from another slave trader. They, they captured him and made him a slave. Eventually, he became the captain of his own slave ship. In a combination of a frightening storm at sea one night, coupled with the reading of a testimony of Christianity planted some seeds in his heart. And what, that did that, what did that do? It led to his conversion. It led to his transformation. He went on to become a leader in the evangelical movement in the 18th century in England. And along with men like Charles Wesley, John Wesley, George Whitfield, William Wilberforce, he was a just foundation of the Christian faith. On his tombstone is inscribed the following epitaph, and he wrote this himself. And it said this, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Now, he penned the hymn that we know so well, what? Amazing Grace, right? And that hymn speaks of his experience. It speaks of how God transformed his life. And that's what Christianity is about. 
See, Christianity is not about conforming your life to a bunch of rules and regulations that a church sets up. If you want to be part of our club, here's what you have to do. That's what we're not about here. That's not what the New Testament was about. The New Testament church was about people who had their lives, what, transformed by the grace of God. And there's a lot of talk about people wanting to improve themselves today, you know, rise higher, do all this stuff, become better than you are. There's even a lot of options. You can, you know, you can put a lot of things um, on your being. You can buy new clothes. Women, you can put on new cosmetics. Nowadays, they even have surgeries that you can have done to make yourself look younger and better. You can go on diets. You can do all these things to try to better your self-image. But you know what? None of that is transformative. None of that changes who you really are. You're just looking different. That's all. Uh, Real transformation can't come from the inside. It cannot come from the inside. It can only come from the outside. All right? Real transformation cannot come from the inside. It can't come from us. Okay? That's what I said, right? Okay. So so you're following. It can't come from the inside. It can only come from the outside. It's only Christ. It's only God through the power of his spirit and the power of his word who can transform us. And see, that's what Christianity is all about. If we're not transformed beings as Christians, what are we? Churchgoers? People who follow a certain sect? There's a passage in the New Testament, in our book actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can turn over there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I just want to read a couple of verses for you because this is what Paul talks about. He talks about the need of transformation And he lists some things here that were very prevalent even in the church at Corinth. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he begins, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And look at what he says in verse 11. (laughs) And such were some of you. Such were, were some of you. But what happened? He says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. See, Christianity isn't about just joining a church and coming to church and and carrying your Bible. It's about transformation. We all have baggage. We all have sin somewhere in our background. The Bible even speaks of that. In Jeremiah 13, 23 The prophet wrote, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Is that even possible? Then also you can do then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. The idea is, you know what? You cannot change yourself. Even in chapter 2, verse 22, Jeremiah says, Though you wash yourselves with lye and use much soap, 
The stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. See, you can put all the makeup on you want. You can clean yourself up as best you can. But before a holy God, guess what? You're still unrighteous. You're still a sinner who needs his grace. We can't correct ourselves from the inside. And even pressure from the outside can't bring about that change. We can't just conform. Christianity is all about transformation, but guess what? People can't change themselves. That's what these verses point out. We can't change our sinful nature. We can't wash ourselves. We can't alter who we are. We can't help get help from others to, to dress that up and, and make us look a different. Because on the inside, we're still sinful. We don't have the ability on our own to respond to even the divine force, the divine discipline, the divine punishment. We don't have that. Proverbs puts it this way. Proverbs 24, 22. Write that down. Proverbs 24, 22. Crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. In other words, that's who you are. It's part of who you are. There's no outside force. There's no inside force in the human realm that can change man. Jeremiah 17, 9, we know this verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or desperately wicked. Who can understand it? When's the last time you heard somebody say, well, you know, yeah, he's got some problems, but he's got a good heart. No, he doesn't. Nobody has a good heart, according to the word of God. Or even in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, very telling verse. Basically, it says there, man is sick from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet and everywhere in between. And yet, because we know this to be true, this isn't something a lot of people can argue about. There's not a lot of people walking around our society saying, oh, yes, I'm perfect. I'm sinless. I do absolutely no wrong at all. There may be a couple, but they're fooling themselves. And so people long for transformation. They long to be different. They long to be rescued from their own sinfulness, from their own wretchedness and its circumstances. Well, let me tell you, there's only one who can totally transform a person from the inside and then on the outside, and that is the God who created us, and that is done through his gospel, through the message of Christ. Well, we come to our time here this morning, and we want to look a little bit at the, the greetings that Paul offers here. So look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm just going to read the first three verses for us, because I want you to see what we're going to be going over. You can follow along there in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus and our brother Sophanes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together 
with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when you read that verse, the first verse, Paul called by the will of God, you know, they, they, they did it right back then when they wrote letters. This is the right way. Have you ever gotten a letter from somebody? You start reading, it's like, who wrote this thing anyway? And you got to go all the way back, you know, oh, ah, I don't want to read this stuff. See, they didn't do that back then. He, he announces right at the beginning, you know, dear Corinthian church, Paul, Paul, I'm writing you a letter. That's what they would do. It made a lot more sense. They would start with letting the recipients know who was writing the letter. And then they would follow, as he does here, well, who's it written to? It's written to the church of God in Corinth. So he makes that very, very clear. Paul always gave his name at the beginning of any of his letters and frequently named other church leaders who helped him to some degree. Sometimes they were his, his like secretary, and they would help him write. In 1 Corinthians here, he mentions Sothenes there in verse 1. That's kind of what his role was, to help him complete this task. But today... I want to look a little bit deeper at the Apostle Paul. I want to look, first of all, at his name, Paul. This is his his common name, Paul. Before he was Paul, he was known as Saul. Uh, He bore, that was his Jewish name, Saul. And you can read in the book of Acts, and it tells us over and over and over how he's referred to as Saul. And then it begins to refer to him as Paul. Interesting fact, he never mentions, uh, he himself at least, never mentions his Jewish name in any of his letters when he's writing. He always identifies himself as Paul. And I think that has to go along with our, our introduction here talking about transformation. This guy truly was transformed, just like the story about John Newton, just incredible transformation in his life. Saul went through an incredible transformation when he was converted, as should any believer. If you're here this morning and you say, well, you know, yeah, after I was saved, there was really no difference at all. You might want to re-examine your salvation because there's always some form of transformation. Now, okay, granted, you might be like Saul out murdering people in the church and have some glorious appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and be gloriously converted and just, you know, wow, night and day. Maybe you were raised in a Christian family. Maybe you always heard the gospel. Maybe you were always raised going to church. That doesn't negate the fact that you need to be transformed. You don't inherit your faith from your parents. You need to be saved just like everybody else needs to be saved. And see, we've done a great injustice even to our children in Christian families over the years, you know, by affirming really, the, the salvation of some very, very young children. Sometimes I've heard parents say, well, you know, yeah, little Mary, you know, she was saved when she was two in Sunday school, you know. They, she raised her hand, and, and, and the teacher led, him in a, led her in a prayer, and I know she's saved. At two, do you really think that, 
children can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm not saying God couldn't save someone at two, but I don't think it's normal. I don't think you can understand what it means to deny yourself at two years of age. I mean, adults can't even comprehend that, let alone take up your cross, which is an instrument of death, and follow me. I mean, that's an amazing kind of a message of the gospel that is, is rooted in understanding some basic facts of your own sinfulness and things like that. A lot of times, young children don't have that. Now, I don't, I don't mean that we don't affirm them. We don't bring them to Sunday school. We don't encourage that. You know, if they want to be saved and they say, hey, can I, can I be saved? Sure. But just because they pray a little prayer or they raise a hand, don't be so quick to affirm them. Um, you know, I've seen this with members of my own family from very young. They've affirmed Christ. They've affirmed it. And then finally, they realize, well, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm just playing because obviously I am doing some things that are not honoring to Christ. And as a result of that, why am I doing these things? And they go back and they examine their own hearts and they realize, I need to come to Christ. I need to be saved. And they are. And they're gloriously saved at that point, even though they've lived pretty much a moral life. See, any life that is transformed, you don't have to be a drug dealer or a prostitute or whatever to be transformed by the grace of God. That's why Paul wrote there in 1 Corinthians 6, hey, such were some of you. And if you read through that list, there's good things, and then there's, you know, maybe it's not so bad things. He includes everybody in that list. And so the idea is, is that we're all tainted by sin, and we all need to be transformed. And Paul is the epitome of transformation. And so we want to understand that when he's talking about himself, he only uses his title, Paul. And I think it has to do with that transformative process. He doesn't want to think about Saul anymore. Saul was out murdering Christians. He wants to be known as Paul. And then you see his ancestry. And before the scene on the Damascus road, he was called, named Saul. Saul from the city of Tarsus, as he's referred to. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Look over in your Bibles at Philippians. This is a great description of Paul and where he came from. Philippians chapter 3. He gives this description in a letter that he wrote to the Philippian church, the Christians in Philippi. And he's describing himself. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 3 of Philippians, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He almost sounds like he's bragging, isn't he? That's what it sounds like. But listen, here's what he does. Verse 5, he gives his credentials. I was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What's he saying? He has some religious clout in his background. As to the law, a Pharisee, they were very strict with the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, I was so zealous in my Judaism, I actually went out and persecuted those Christians. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Doesn't mean he was perfect. 
He was just saying, you know what? If you, if you saw the Apostle Paul, pretty much, I mean, he was a guy sold out for what he was doing. He wasn't hypocritical in his application of the law. Verse 7, look at what he says. But whatever gain I had, what? I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. In other words, all this list of stuff that I just gave you that are very respectable credentials as far as the religious world was concerned. He says, that's nothing. I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. In verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, nothing even compares to knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Nothing, nothing can even touch the transformation that Christ has done in my heart. He has saved me by his grace. And he wants everybody to know that. Everything else, I just counted as loss. Nothing's even worth, comes up to the pale of knowing Christ Jesus is my Lord. And then he says this in verse 8. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. What? Garbage. Dung. Just throw it out. It has no use anymore. Why do you do this, Paul? He says in verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ. See, that's why I say he's not saying this is a perfect man. He's in the process of sanctification just like you and I are. But he is firmly fixed on that process, and he doesn't want to do anything to hinder his growth in Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Did he have an ancestry? Yes. Was it respectable? Yes. What did he do with it? When he came to understand who Christ was, when he was transformed by the power of God through the gospel and the Holy Spirit, he counted all that, all his credentials as rubbish, that he would gain Christ. He had an incredible education, too. He was a pupil of Gamaliel, a student of Jewish traditions. I mean, this guy was passionate about Israel. Saul was. He saw Christianity, and he saw the gospel as a threat to his own religion. He was Jewish. And he said, wait a minute, these guys are coming along, and they're, they're following Christ, and they're, they're stealing our thunder. He didn't like that. So just like anybody else would stand up for what they believed, he stood up for what he believed. The unfortunate thing was he was on the wrong side of belief. (laughs) And so his persecution of the church wasn't for fun. It wasn't like, hey, you know, let's go out and nab me a couple Christians today. No. In his idea, he was doing the work of God. I mean, I I, I made this illustration, I think, before, but it's kind of like, modern-day ISIS. 
You say, how could people be so savage and so horrible? I mean, to kill people the way they've done it. Thousands and thousands of people, women, children. No, has no boundary to what they've done in this world. Because they're sold out to their religious ideology. That's why. They're influenced by Satan himself. And Satan uses their religion to, to carry out these evil things. Well, Paul was really much in the same way. He was doing what he was doing, persecuting the church, not just for fun, but because he really believed in the cause. He was horrified at the thought that Jesus would claim to be the Messiah. And he wanted to do everything that he could to stamp out what they called the way. That's what they used to call Christianity in the early church, the way. He looked at it as a religion that was associated with Jesus. He would imprison his followers. And if need be, he would execute anybody who was associated with Christianity. He fought hard against the truth. But he didn't win. God did. We find him even in the Acts, the book of Acts in chapter 7 at the end there. He's standing there at the stoning of Stephen. You can read it for yourselves in your own time. We're not going to go into it this morning. The people who were stoning Stephen to death, the Bible says that they were laying their garments before they would pick up their stones at the feet of Saul of Tarsus. Why? Because he was the ringleader. It's kind of like, hey, I want to get some rocks too, but I got to take off my garments so I can get a good throw in. Here, Saul, hold my stuff. And he supervised the stoning of this Christian man named Stephen. In chapter 8, It begins with Saul saying that he was in hearty agreement over the stoning of Stephen to death. He agreed with that. He thought that was a good thing. And he was really leading a great persecution, both against the church in Jerusalem, and he was trying to scatter these Christians everywhere. We don't know what persecution means here in America. We have no concept of persecution. You know, our idea of persecution is someone cracks a joke about our faith at work. Oh boy, I I carried my cross. I was persecuted for Christ. Why? What happened? Oh, they, they called me a religious wacko. That's not persecution. You know, you talk to some of the Christian individuals over in the Middle East who had to deal with ISIS when they came into their town. And if they were Christians, what would they do? They'd behead them. Kids, families, they didn't care. Or they throw them in a cage and burn them alive. Or they drowned them alive. Horrible, horrible things. Because of their faith. We don't understand what persecution means today, but you know what? We better begin to. Because I think the day is coming, even here in America, when the church of Jesus Christ will be persecuted in a very real way way. Yeah, it's going to start small. It's going to start with things like, well, you know, you can't say certain things. If you say certain things, then sorry, we're going to have to pull your, your, your nonprofit status. All of a sudden, you're going to have to pay taxes on all the property you own as a small little church. Now let's see if you'll still speak the truth. 
I've already thought this through. I thought, yeah, we'll just go to house churches. Who cares? We don't need a building. We don't need a property. Let them have it. Who cares? See, you have to be thinking in an eternal perspective. You have to be thinking in a way that doesn't tie you down to this, this world. And Paul was out persecuting the church. It tells us in verse 3 of chapter 8, he began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women who had put them in prison. He tried to execute Christians even as far as away as Damascus. That's almost a week journey walking from where Paul was. That's how dedicated he was to ridding their society of this. And we know, if you turn over to Acts chapter 9, and we want to look at this portion this morning because this tells us a little bit about his conversion. Acts chapter 9. Paul is on his way with some other individuals on the road to Damascus. He's going there to persecute the church, most likely rid the society of them, kill them. And we read in verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This doesn't mean the 12 disciples, by the way. This means disciples, matetas, a follower of Christ. You and I, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you're a disciple of Christ. So that's what it's referring to. Anybody who was following the Lord was in danger of persecution. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now remember, early in the New Testament church when people got saved and they were converted, a lot of them were converted out of a Jewish background and they still went to synagogue. That's all they knew. But they embraced Christ. So that's why he was interested in some of these letters. And so it says in verse 3, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. He's on his way thinking, okay, let's go get some of these these individuals. We'll rile them up and, and take care of them. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. It tells us that this happened quick. It tells us where the light came from. It came from heaven. And it flashed around him. Verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him. This is Saul hearing this voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if you've ever been caught doing something you haven't, weren't supposed to do. <laughs> I can remember when I was little doing some things that I shouldn't have done. And all of a sudden, my brother whips the door open. Maybe I was playing with matches, or maybe I was eating something I shouldn't have taken from the kitchen. What are you doing in here? I'm, ah, you know. Well, that's what God does. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5. And he said, who are you, Lord? Who is this? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
Now, talk about a dramatic transformation, a dramatic conversion. That's why I said this is, this is a transformation of all transformations. Then the men, verse 7, who were traveling with him stood speechless. So this light that appeared basically leveled everybody. Other accounts tell us this. You can read later on in Acts where he kind of retells this. And he says basically everybody was struck down. Now this isn't being slain in the spirit. This is not what this means. This is being encountered by the holy God of creation in a very dynamic way. And that's why I don't believe most of the stories when people say, yeah, you know, I was shaving and uh, yesterday morning and boy, the Lord just appeared to me and we had a great conversation. And I remember MacArthur asking somebody who said that to him, he said, I have one question for you. What's that? He goes, after the Lord appeared, did you continue to shave? (laughs) Well, sure. Trust me, it wasn't the Lord. I mean, you would be flat on the ground if you stood in the presence of God. I mean, what are we thinking? And so here, all these men, including Saul of Tarsus, apparently were leveled out. But verse 7 indicates that the men got back up. Because it says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They, They didn't know what to do. Hearing a voice, but seeing no one. So they didn't perceive what Saul perceived they heard a voice they didn't really understand even the voice and a lot of times when god spoke to individuals other individuals who were present just heard thunder they heard other kinds of sounds but they didn't understand like the person that god was directly speaking to they didn't see anybody verse 8 saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened he saw nothing He was blinded literally by the light. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Now remember, why is he going to Damascus? He's going to to Damascus to kill Christians. But they are under the instruction of the Lord now. And he says, I want you to go into the city. And when you get there, I'm going to tell you what to do. And for three days he was without sight. And he neither ate nor drank. Guess he was a little upset. Wouldn't you be upset if you had an encounter with the holy God of the universe? And all of a sudden you couldn't see anymore? Your eyes were blinded? Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, this poor guy, you just wonder, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. Verse 11, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man by the name of, of, of Tarsus, by the name of Saul. For behold, he's praying, and he has seen me in a vision, a man named Ananias, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, at this time, Ananias is probably saying, say, say What? You want me to do what? Saul of Tarsus? Are you nuts? This guy's coming here to kill us. You want me to go? Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, 
I have heard from many people about this man. <laughs> you sure you got the right guy? Because he is a very evil individual and he's done a lot of bad things to the saints of Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord doubled down said to him, verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, a step of faith on the part of Ananias. He's dealing with someone who murders Christians for a living, and he addressed them as Brother Saul. Why? Because God has chosen him. That's why. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and immediately he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, and he was strengthened. Now, it goes on there, and it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. That would have been an interesting meeting to be part of. You can only imagine the disciples. Should we trust this guy? Do you think this is a ruse? Do you think he's just setting us up? Maybe they're all going to come in and murder all of us. Who knows what's going to happen? It says in verse 20, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. So that's a message that's diametrically opposed to his message before he came to Christ. And all who heard him were amazed. They were amazed that Saul of Tarsus was saying that Jesus is the Messiah. And said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose, for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ And then it goes on, and eventually, even his own countrymen, the Jews, want him gone. Because he was so radically transformed. Something happened to Saul on that road. We don't have to wonder what happened. The Bible is very clear. God transformed him. God saved him. Miraculously. Graciously. Completely. That's the only kind of salvation there is. That's it. There's not a, there's not a salvation that, that kind of, you know, well, you, you come to church for a while and you learn the language and, you know, you realize that people in church generally don't cuss in church, so you don't cuss anymore. And you generally, you don't see a smoking area here on the campus, so maybe you leave your cigarettes in the car because you don't want to smoke here at church. And, and maybe, you know, you, other areas of your life that are, maybe you don't want to share, you know, you don't bring a beer over to the fellowship hall and say, hey, you want a beer? You know, you just wouldn't do that. That's probably just not not something they, these church people do. And you learn all that behavior and pretty soon you start to feel comfortable within the church and you feel like, well, oh, I'm really part of this group. None of those things make you part of the church. 
You can dress yourself up. You can act any way you want. That does not make you part of the church. What makes you part of the church is when the Lord God transforms your heart. He changes you. And that change is just like from black to white. You don't have to be somebody like Saul who is out killing Christians for a living and then have this glorious thing. You can just be somebody who's been part of the, maybe you're part of the church. Maybe you've been attending the church. But you've never seen God transform or experience the transformative power of God through the gospel of Christ. Maybe your salvation's a lie. Maybe you are not part of Christ's church. This is not something to be thrown around. This is not something to be taken lightly. I mean, it was Jesus himself who said, you know what? There's going to come a day when people stand before me and they cry out, Lord, Lord, right in Matthew? Haven't we cast out demons in your name? They even called Jesus Lord. Haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? And after he, they're done with their list of little things that they do well, he says, you know what? Depart from me. I never knew you. Never knew you. Not that he knew them at one time and then they fell away. That Those verses talk about our security in Christ. Once you are transformed by the power of the gospel, once you are saved by the blood of Christ, you are saved for all eternity. That is a blessing. How would you like to go to bed every night wondering whether or not you're going to make it through the night? That your salvation would be secure in the morning? I mean, what do you think? I come out of a church, the Catholic church, that teaches just that. You've got you to keep on coming back. You've got you to go to communion. You've got to go to confession. You've got to do all these works to earn God's grace. That's not true salvation. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And so Paul was miraculously, graciously, completely converted by the power of God. And Christ himself was commissioned. He commissioned Paul himself to proclaim the gospel among the Gentiles. And so when you stop and you think of the apostle Paul, and we'll get into this next week, that word apostle, it's not a fancy word. All it means is somebody who's sent on a mission. Somebody who's set apart strategically to go on a mission. Now, in the New Testament, when you see the word apostle, in the most technical sense, the word apostle is used only of the twelve. It's used only of the twelve, including Matthias, who replaced, remember, Judas, who went down the wrong path. But it's also used of Paul, because he was uniquely set apart as an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, in the closing couple minutes here, I just want to share with you five reasons why Paul felt it necessary to make sure that they understood who he was as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Please understand, Paul's not bragging here. You know, sometimes it's interesting when you get pastors together. You know... uh, you can tell real quick who's caught up with titles. Uh, 
And you can tell real quick whether you offended someone by not including the title of pastor. Pastor John or Pastor Steve. Or I often tell people, you know, call me whatever you want. You can call me the church janitor. You can call me Pat. Whatever. Whatever fits you. I don't care. It's, it's not something that I'm... It's not an accolade. Okay? It's a calling. Um, it'd be like somebody walking around saying, Hey, you know... Uh, uh, Engineer Bob, how you doing? <laughs> we wouldn't do that. Now, we should be respectful of those who are called to serve the Lord in that capacity. I'm not saying that. But as I've said many times before, the only thing between the difference here is on Sunday morning is I'm facing one way and you're facing the other. We're all on the same pl- We're all sinners saved by God's grace. And we all need his grace each and every day. Well, one of the reasons, the first reason here that Paul asserted his apostleship was because he was not part of the twelve. Remember, Christ is long gone at this point. And the only way that you could be included in the apostleship was that you had to see the risen Christ and be part of that ministry. He had not been called by Jesus during his earthly ministry to be one of the inner circle of disciples or apostles. In Acts chapter 1, verse 22 It said, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taking up from us. That gives the parameters of when people could be an apostle, to be called by Christ. Of that original group, one of them, Judas, was disqualified. And later he was replaced by Matthias. And they did that by the casting of lots. He was chosen by God, verse 24 of Acts 1 tells us. And so when they selected Matthias, the apostolic group was complete. So if you're speaking of someone as an apostle today, in that technical sense, they're not. In a non-technical sense, we're all sent, right? We're all sent ones. But in the official capacity of an apostle of the New Testament church, there was the twelve. And beginning at Pentecost, the apostles were clearly the authoritative voice of the gospel. They were the ones who were in charge of laying the foundation of the New Testament church. In Acts, when Peter gave his message at the time, he did so, and it says, taking his stand with the eleven. So they were all together, and they were saying, hey, this is what it is. And it tells us in, in verse 42, the church in Jerusalem that just began, devoted itself to whose teaching? The apostles' teaching. They were the sent ones directly by Christ. The apostles were the Lord's supreme earthly representatives, and they preached and they taught with his authority. Ephesians 2.20 says that the apostles, along with Christ, Christ is the cornerstone, and the apostles were the foundation of the church. You say, well, don't you believe we have apostles today? No, I do not. Why? Because the foundation has been laid. When you're building a new building, you don't lay the foundation. And then come back in six weeks after you lay the foundation. Oh, let's lay the foundation on top of the foundation. You would never do that. That's ridiculous. Why? Because the foundation's already been established. Paul was first known to the church as a bitter enemy and persecutor. 
Paul never saw or heard Jesus during that time. He not only had not chosen to be a follower of Christ, but he had chosen to oppose the truth, to oppose Christ and all of his followers with all his might, as we talked about. Even after his conversion, there was no way he could retroactively become one of the twelve. They couldn't say, well, you know, this guy's doing a really good job. Let's just make him an honorary apostle. Couldn't happen. They had to be specifically chosen by the Lord. That's why God had, Christ had to come back on the road to Damascus. To specifically choose Paul and send him on a mission. Secondly, I believe that he emphasized his apostleship because of his dealings with detractors. There was a lot of false teaching going on in the New Testament church, even at this early stage. And he was continuously being harassed. He was continuously being challenged. Mostly out of pride. Other people didn't want him getting all the limelight, they thought. The Judaizers were particularly strong and persisting in opposing Paul's authority. And they constantly questioned his doctrine. They questioned his motives. Even some who claimed to be his friends resisted his leadership. And they questioned his teaching. Some ridiculed him. They persecuted him. For, he said, I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. See, in spite of all the denials, Paul's teacher, Paul's teaching was true. It was reliable. It was divinely inspired by the Spirit of God. And so he had to stand up for it. Thirdly, Paul emphasized his apostleship because of his relationship to Christ. This emphasis was for the benefit of fellow believers. I mean, they weren't sure whether Paul was genuinely saved or not. They knew who he was, Saul of Tarsus, persecuting the church. And their fears were, of course, that somehow that he would, you know, it was all a ruse. But Christians in other places also had misgivings. Legalistic Judaizers, for example, had confused many Christians in Galatia about the gospel and about Paul's authority and teaching. They were opposing him. And so, therefore, carefully, he reminds the Corinthian church of his full apostolic, apostolic authority. And he writes this personal letter to them. Fourthly, Paul emphasized his apostleship to point out his special relationship to the church of Corinth itself, not just with the Lord, but with the church itself. In chapter 9, verse 2, he says it's a seal of his apostleship in the Lord. I mean, they of all people should be able to recognize his special calling and his position. Their very existence as the body of believers was proof of his right to address them with divine authority. He was the instrument that God used to bring them to salvation, to plant that church. So he had a special relationship with that church. And then lastly, fifthly, and we'll close with this, Paul emphasized his apostleship in order to show his special relationship to God as his emissary. He was an apostle, it says there, of Jesus Christ. Why, because he wanted to be? No, it says by the will of who? By the will of God. 
He was basically saying, what I say to you is delegated by God. I am a speaker, a voice of God in your midst. I am his apostle. And my message to you is from God above. It's a message personally. And so he had all the reason and more even to defend his apostleship. In light of the false teachers, in light of the twelve, in light of his relationship to Christ and the Corinthian church and God the Father, Paul was fully an apostle. He had the right, the duty to carry out the legitimacy of his apostleship in order to establish the legitimacy of his message. And that's what we're going to see next week. We'll touch a little further on the purposes and responsibilities of these apostles. How did God call them? What was their role in the New Testament church? And then we get into the the meat of the book. Well, I pray that you're reading ahead. I pray that you've taken up on my challenge to read the book of Corinthians, maybe 1 Corinthians several times, and also to be able to even reread the chapters that we're going through. Read them a couple times a week. Take chapter 1, read it a couple times a week. You'll become more familiar with the text. That will help you in your application of its truth. Well, Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that, Lord, this isn't something that just has happened way back when, when Saul was Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church, and you transformed his life into this incredible apostle that was sent directly by you to not only the church, but even to the Gentile world with the message of the gospel. And Lord, for that to happen, there had to be a transformation. And Lord, we can't transform ourselves. We can't change ourselves. We can try awful hard, but we all know what happens when we try. It's kind of like making New Year's resolutions. A couple weeks, we're right back to how we were. But Lord, you can transform us with your power and your grace through the power of the gospel if we're just willing to come to you, if we're just willing to admit our sin before you, that we're not perfect beings, that we are stained by sin, and that has separated us in our relationship with you, and yet you sent your Son as a means of bridging that gap, of allowing us to to come to your Son, to trust in his sacrifice for our sin, so that we may be clothed in his righteousness, as he took his, our sin upon himself. And Lord, we know that his sacrifice was sincere. It was true because on the third day he rose victorious over sin and death. And so, Father, that's what waits, awaits us if we trust in you. If we are willing to turn from our sin to the Savior. It's just an acknowledgement of God being God and, and us being fallen creatures. Lord, I pray that the hearts would cry out to you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Transform this heart. Transform this life as only you can. Maybe you've been in church for years and you've never been transformed. You've never been saved. God knows that, but he's still waiting. And as believers, Lord, I pray that we would be willing to reach out to those around us with this transformative message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we'd be willing to share boldly not only how you've transformed us but how you can transform others and Father that we would see many come to Christ 
we would see their lives changed, transformed as a result of your saving their their hearts. We thank you and we pray for a blessing upon our fellowship time across the way. Give us a, a wonderful week and I pray that you would just dismiss us with your blessing now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.